Uh, welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm realizing I screwed things up and had this listed as tomorrow uh, instead of now, which might have um, caused some people to not see it. But uh, anyway, I'm your host, Jesse Single. Uh, I'm a podcaster and writer. I have a podcast you should check out called Blocked and Reported with Katie Herzog. Uh, I have a newsletter at jessesingle.substack.com. And uh, yeah, I want to talk about a couple things quickly before taking your calls. Chewy, I will get to you soon. And anyone else who wants to jump in the queue can. Sorry, I just need to rearrange for a minute. <clears throat> I'm doing call-in from my bed, which is the best way to do call-in. Just reclining, relaxing like a, uh, like a Roman emperor. So the two things I wanted to talk about were um, my monthly column in The Spectator is called Speech Lesson. The burgeoning tech dystopias in Russia and China are all the more reason to err on the side of robust free speech laws and norms to not budge an inch. Uh, this is something that's been bugging me for a while watching uh, the Ukraine crisis. To me, one of the more disturbing subplots of it is that there's like 1.5 billion people in China and Russia who either are completely denied accurate information about what's going on uh, in China. That's because they've basically ceded to the Russian narrative and are helping the Russians spread it or they can be actively persecuted just for telling the truth about what's going on on the ground in Ukraine. And the point of my article, which I think I really wish progressives would take more seriously, is that this is a genuinely dystopian situation. It's just poison for free democratic societies, and it can happen. I mean, it's 2022 and it's happening. Uh, liberal free speech norms have not been the norm in human history, and they're very easily toppled, and there will always be people looking for excuses to weaken them. So I obviously think in the United States we have protections, mostly from the Constitution, that Russia and China lack. I don't think we're on the verge of a totalitarian state. I just think people are very flippant and complacent uh, about this stuff, and that was sort of the point I was trying to make in my column. Um, it's something else I want to discuss, but let's just go to Chewy first. What's up, Chewy? Hey, Hello. Jesse. Um, uh, first of all, I assumed that when you said you were uh, resettling or whatever it's said, it was your balls. You're just resettling your mm -hmm, balls. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, totally, absolutely. It, I'm well. I'm, I'm glad that you put some context into this free speech thing you're talking about because actually, one of my critiques um, is that my critique is not that you're an, a free speech absolutist, but I kind of think you are. Like. My, my, my critique is about the absolutism. There is no constitutional right which is absolute. Um, and the easy thing to go to is like fire in a theater. You can't say fire in a theater. That's a, a restriction on free speech. But I don't really want to go there. And I don't also want to go to the like Twitter is a private company. They're not under free speech um, restrictions, right? What I want to go to is why... What I have noticed, and I may be wrong, just the thing that I have noticed is that on Twitter, at least, um, which, as we all know, is the best place to have discourse, um, when you go to counter examples like this 1.5 billion people in China and Russia who are under sort of free speech totalitarianism, right, you always go to a sort of like a, a dystopian... Um, aspect and i don't i just i to me i see it and when i hear you say it it doesn't seem realistic i think i mean my big like my big theory one of my big theories is that 
inertia matters. And I think that like constitutional democracies who have a long history like America, the inertia really matters. It takes a long time to overthrow um, particular norms of discussion. Yeah, but not to break in, but I just I, I, I yeah, don't think ahead. we're on the verge of a totalitarian yeah. state. I'm just saying these norms uh, can be eroded pretty quickly and we should be less flippant and complacent about them. So I don't think that they can be eroded as quickly as you think they can. Um, I, I really think, going back to the inertia point, that inertia really matters. Um, and I don't think it's a really good argument that if we, that if we ask for Twitter or you know, other platforms uh, of the social media age to have content moderation, that we're like quickly moving to a potentially dystopian Chinese-Russian model. I just, it, it seems really nihilistic. It seems simplistic. And it seems to like, I don't know. It seems, it, 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 I don't, so you go to these, you go to these, like, these dystopian models so quickly. And I don't think it's a really, I, I think dystopias are interesting. I don't think it's a really good argument. Uh. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I don't think I argued exactly that. I get what you're saying. I don't, I don't think Twitter having content moderation is like the step between us and totalitarianism. I just think people are um, complacent about the fact that Twitter and Facebook can obviously have a pretty big influence on what ideas get out there, and they have a lot of power. And people act like any decision they make by dint of being a decision made by a private company has no free speech ramifications. And I just don't think that's yes. true. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I, I mean, I, I'm with you. I like, you're right. It doesn't mean that there's no ramifications. Like I'm totally with you. I'm not, I'm really not trying to pretend there's no ramifications, but we also have, so, okay. So let's take, let's take, I, 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 I do. Hey, just cause the cues, um, Philip, yeah. can you just, just like final thought or question? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, I'll try to make that short. So, for instance, like the Hunter Biden story, it was like not covered by a lot of things. It was silenced by a lot of things. Well, if you wanted to figure out Hunter Biden, you could go to DuckDuckGo, take a search for Hunter Biden and find it out. Right. So I don't is the, the model doesn't seem correct. Right. Of of like we're in a potential for horrific dystopian model. Uh. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I guess um, I'm just going to uh, take Patrick. I, I appreciate yeah, the culture. Okay. I guess I would just say, to me, it's it's obviously clear why you don't want tech giants capable with choosing what uh, capable of deciding what billions of people do or don't see, making what are clearly politicized decisions, like in the immediate um, with an election coming up. Obviously, they have to make some decisions and they have to make them in real time, and they might be imperfect. And you know, you don't want uh, rampant misinformation spreading. But to me, the Hunter Biden laptop is an example of um, you know the first inch down a slippery slope where the political allegiances of a social media giant's CEO determines what we see. Um, so, and and until recently, liberals were very concerned about corporate controlled media. So I, I don't know. To me, it's the same vein of concern. Patrick, what is up? Uh, oh, so I have a question. Do you find it weird that people aren't more embarrassed about the Hunter Biden laptop story? Like when that came out, I was so convinced that it was fake and like arguing with like right wing relatives. And now having to like come back and say like, oh, turns out you were right. Oh, my God. I feel so dumb. It was really bad. I, I haven't followed it closely. And I think along the way, there have been some false claims. But clearly, the core of the story was true. 
and just wore the shit out of us. I mean, first of all, because people have a right to information. They have a right to vote for Trump if they decide. To, I mean, I think that'd be stupid in this case, but they have a right to make their own decision about the information. And because, as I'm saying, it, if this kind of behavior gets normalized and it's already partly normalized, uh, it, it can affect what information gets out there. It really can. Like what's Googleable, what you can find on Twitter, what you can find on Facebook. These are disproportionately powerful platforms for at least setting the agenda among sort of decision making types. Yeah, I don't know. The whole content moderation thing, it just feels really weird. It seems like a lot of people are supremely confident that they know what's best for everyone when it's even just like, dude, like, look at, like, things that five years later, like, even things you're supremely confident about actually turn out to be wrong based upon the new data coming out. I, I just don't get, like, this uh, urge to, like, kind of crib, uh, cringe things. Like, sure, like, I guess you would be able to prevent, like, another loose change from coming out, but, like, we didn't need content moderation to re uh, for everyone to say, like, oh, yeah, 9-11 definitely happened. Like, it wasn't an inside job. It, it just feels like I don't know, people are hall monitor-ish or like need to prevent it out where there's kind of like an inbred elitism where people thinking that they know what's best for everybody else to kind of police other kind of stuff. It just, I don't know. I, I don't have the idea of what like tech companies need to do to like kind of solve it, but I feel like everyone needs to just chill a little bit more, but that's not... Chill, chill is in short supply. Yeah. Thank you, Patrick. Anything else? No, no, that's it for me. Um, doing a strength build on Elden Ring. If you haven't played it yet, you should get into it. Uh, it's gonna destroy my life when I finally get a PlayStation Five and play that. So I'm gonna try. I'm trying to stay away from it. I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos, and everyone says it's amazing. So it's no, probably it, inevitable. It, it, God damn it. it! It's the best. You got to get into it. Just right. give up. I'm just gonna give up on everything. What's up, Mark? Mark, you gotta unmute yourself. There we go. Hey Jesse, how you good. Doing? How are you? Uh, good. Uh, so I have a so I have two lines of questions. I think I hope they're going to be short. Um, the first one, I guess, is about this issue of I agree with the column. I agree that content moderation is one of those things that's very difficult to work out. I used to work on content moderation on the tech side. It's pretty bad. Um, how do you think that tech companies or journalists more broadly can? work with stuff like context collapse. So I think this is kind of an important thing with respect to having a better understanding of the news itself. Like I think like one good example of this recently was um, with this lives of TikTok stuff. I think one of the things that was interesting is Taylor Renz highlights these sex educators who are attacked uh, by lives of TikTok in response. You have some moderates or I think Kathy Young is something who brings it up. She says, well, or maybe I'm, I'm getting the, the author wrong, but someone like Kathy Young says in response, well, this is a camp that was teaching kids how to masturbate. I look at the actual video. It says something very different. And actually, on, for the New, York, the New York Times published similar advice on how to talk about like childhood, like this un very uncomfortable subject of what to do if you run to your kid playing with yourself. The advice is actually very similar to what's in this, this camp that kind of was, causes huge kind of moral panic. Caused Chris Rufo, I think, to write about it, calling these people groomers. How do you, like, this just strikes me as kind of like a core problem. How do you deal with these uncomfortable subjects that require people to kind of keep a calm head and deal with context blocks? How exactly do you go about this problem? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about a really wicked problem in part because there's a lot of claims that 
aren't exactly false and that definitely don't meet the high American bar for libel. Uh, not that it's easy to pursue libel cases anyway, but but which are clearly misleading or, or like you're saying, stripped of context or instances of context collapse. So I think all we can do is try to bolster the norms that like, even if you agree with Chris Rufo and are in favor of his project, uh, you should want him to be honest and you should hold him accountable. That's partly why I think like sort of in-group monitoring is really important and making sure your side uh, conducts itself with the same behavior you would hope the other side would, um, which is these are all very boring, normie, liberal, sort of lame and uninspiring answers, but I just don't really think there's a technological solution to stuff like that because you can't you can't start banning people, except in the most egregious cases, for like posting somewhat misleading but sort of true content. That that would be its own slippery slope that would lead some bad places. This is this is a great follow up to my to my next line of inquiry. Which side do you think is better right now at policing their own side? I think a year ago I would have said that conservatives tend to be maybe a little bit better at this, particularly because I think a lot of, or especially in 2020, right? You had this huge moral panic in newsrooms about people saying the wrong thing and then people being attacked uh, or, or like they're losing their jobs. Now I'm seeing a lot more conservatives kind of go around, around the route of, um, I'm from Florida. I see a lot of conservatives kind of banning a lot of books throughout the entire state. Um, obviously this bill that was passed, uh, the don't say gay bill for lack of a better word, I says, I think a free speech issue. DeSantis' recent bill kind of stripping Disney of its Vatican City status, if you want to call it that is a great example of that, right? I mean, it strikes me that on the left, I mean, there's you, there's yourself, I think, can think of some, you know, writers at the sense who have maybe have some stronger free sp- uh, speech norms. On the right, I mean, there's David French and there's this ascendant liberalism with guys like Sohar Amari and Adrian Vermeule. Um, where do you think the focus should be? Do you think that the right kind of needs, you need to kind of focus on the right here and kind of inject the antibodies there or just continue the project? Uh, I think the both right sides left? have their own problems and there's some parallels. I mean, I actually, I, I think the right has been um, the sort of fake news ecosystem that erupted there when Trump was getting popular, uh, which which I sort of wrote about and covered somewhat for a while, was, was completely bonkers. And I've, I sort of got bored and disillusioned writing about it, but it's still a really serious problem. I mean, the whole like... Gateway Pundit, uh, all these bizarre Facebook pages that spread fake news. It's a really big problem. I think in certain cases, um, liberals are unfortunately moving that direction. I still don't think we're as bad, but um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's a matter of focusing on one side or the other. I think it's a matter of trying to come to shared understandings of like how we should seek truth and, and what the norm should be about misinformation and stuff like that, which is, again, a boring answer, but I don't know what else to say. What, what's, I guess, your practical guide? If you were to kind of say, like, I'm going to try and write how to have impossible conversations but be sane, what would that, um, what would that kind of look like? Going what's your I just wish people would fucking quote the people they disagree with accurately. I mean, that's the most common thing. It's just like this ridiculous straw manning uh, where you're not responding to their actual arguments. So, yeah, again, a boring answer, but that's all I got. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Uh, Neil, what is that? Hey, so this is just a quick thing, but in your most recent episode, you didn't know the one word in like the weird like sexual threat against you. And as a weave, I just had to inform you that Shinkansen is the Japanese word for bullet train. So I just had to tell you. So, of course. Okay. Yeah, this was a uh, a lovely thread where someone, as a guy, it was my first ever experience with something like this. Someone um, basically fantasized about raping me. Except, of course, it was rape that I wanted. I secretly wanted it. Uh, so... Anyway, thank you. Shinkansen is a bullet train. So they were threatening to bullet train my pelvis or something? Yeah, I guess so. 
Okay, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, Yastarian, what's up? Hey, Jesse. Hey. Hey, that, that last call reminded me something not to, to, to revisit, but something I meant to talk to you, and I, I didn't get in the queue fast enough for a few, I guess it was a few weeks ago, when the people were wishing you death by a suicide. I just wanted to say for, you know, for what it's worth, having lost someone close to me to that, that is one of the ugliest sentiments that a human being can express. And I just wish... I'm sorry you went through that. It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. It's And I just wish that, that your critics, as, as vociferously as they dislike your work, would not sell their, their own humanity so cheaply as, as, to, as to make those kinds of comments, because they really are uh, just beyond the pale. Appreciate so, that. With, with that virtue signaling throat clearing out of the way, um, I wanted to, I uh, was provoked to call in. I try not to call in too much, um, but I find, you know, I love this app because I get to talk to people who I find interesting and thoughtful and Thank who you. are engaged in the public square. Um, but I did want to respond to, to somewhat of what Chewy was talking about in terms of sort of the inertia of free speech. And I, I very much disagree with that. Um, I think the, the liberties that, that we as Americans enjoy are, if you look at the, the panoply of human history and even the present moment, are incredibly rare. And I think each generation of Americans sort of has to, to learn it and figure it out. And I don't think we're, we're on like the, the fast train to authoritarianism, but the, the authoritarian impulse is pretty universal in humans. When, we, when other people say or do or want things that we strongly disagree with, there's this very strong impulse to just stop them, to just force them to not do it. And, um, and I, I wish more people were familiar with uh, the, probably the greatest judicial name in the history of the American legal system, Learned Hand. You know, he, has, he had a speech in 1944 called The Spirit of Liberty. And it's a cliche to those who know it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a cliche, but he said, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. When it dies there, no constitution, no law, no court can even do much to help it. While it lies there, it needs no constitution, no law, no court to save it. And so we, it's not, I'm, I'm so tired of people talking in terms of free speech just being this First Amendment government thing. It's like, no, it's a norm. And you see this with the, the culture war fights over really what is the Overton window, right? And what is acceptable to, to talk about and what isn't. And I just feel like we're caught in this feedback loop where the left and right are just antagonizing one another so much that each will feel completely justified in taking this sort of anti-liberty approach. I mean, what DeSantis is, you know, what they're doing to, to Disney in Florida and as, as we discussed, the don't say, the quote unquote, don't say gay bill, which I think is an overreaction, but is if liberals did a better job of policing their own side, then it wouldn't, you wouldn't be giving those grounds. Anyway, I think it's, I'm having this long winded rant and I apologize for that. Just to close, I think it's like the, the, the end of free speech will be more like what Hemingway said of, of bankruptcy and the sun also rises. It'll be gradually. And then all at once. And I think we're very much in the gradually phase right now. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, thanks for calling. Sorry. I don't think it'll be some big spectacular thing either. I think it's just you like, you know, the, what's the cliche about the frog in the boiling water? Oh, I've got our cliches today. I think I need more coffee. Hey, Devin, how's it going? Hey, Jesse. I'm pretty well. Um, big fan. I had two Thank questions. Um, my first question was, you know, I, I noticed that like in early February, the Department of Homeland Security had a bulletin on their website talking about how misinformation on the Internet is a major threat to the U.S. homeland and talking about how they're working with private tech companies to do something about it. 
Um, and I was just kind of curious, why is there not more scrutiny from journalists on this sort of relationship between national security and the government and these companies? They, they seem to be collaborating. I don't think it's legal, but uh, it seems to be something that merits more scrutiny. I was just curious if you have any ideas about why there's not more scrutiny on it. Um, I could speculate. I think it's unfortunately there's a strain in liberal thinking right now where instead of being inherently a little bit skeptical of authority, especially you know uh, authority that operates in the darkness, there's a sense that they're on our team and that we should therefore trust them and root for them. And um, you know you see this in things like the, there were some of the one six of the January six like prosecution seemed to be a little bit overblown. There was this sense of like really trying to get people on whatever charges you could, which usually liberals would be against uh, if the political valence of the crime was different. But I, this is something that worries me. I mean, you see, uh, I just did a thing about how I was wrong about like some of these bad ideas in 2015. I didn't think they were going to leave uh, college campuses and like come into the real world. But one of the things that unfortunately I think has escaped uh, sort of elite campuses is this belief that like uh, mommy and daddy will make it better for lack of a better word. Like you see a lot of college kids demanding new forms of punishment for their classmates who do something wrong, new forms of surveillance, uh, bias response teams that has spread into, in some newsrooms, some unionization efforts uh, are demands for management to put more demands on workers uh, in issue areas right. like equity. And there's a belief that that management uh, is to be trusted when it comes to surveilling workers and punishing workers, and we need more of it. And I, I, that's bad enough when you extend that to the national security state and to them working behind the scenes with for-profit companies to decide what information can and can't be disseminated. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? You think that's a good idea? You're a progressive? You're a liberal? Yeah. You lived through the Bush years? You think that's a good idea? It drives me crazy. Yeah, and I think watching it from, you know, this started with them deplatforming ISIS in 2014 with advice from the National Security Committee. I mean, you can read lawfare articles about it. But we went from deplatforming ISIS, like terrorists in the Middle East, to deplatforming an American president and U.S. citizens within six years. Yeah, I think this escalation is like, it has its own inertia. And if you think about it in those terms, it's like, it's very, very quick. Um, so yeah, I, I worry about it. I, I guess my second question for you, and I'll let you go, is, um, you know, if these companies started deplatforming people protesting what the U.S. is doing in Ukraine, I mean, I'm, I'm pro the U.S. being involved in Ukraine, but, you know, there's a lot of kind of pseudo war protesting going on in the right. You have Tucker Carlson kind of acting like, like Jane Fonda. You know, if these companies just privately started deplatforming people um, for sort of protesting you know, a no fly zone in Russia, if, there, if that was now Russian disinformation, because it was like entangled with like talking points from Putin. And, you know, this idea has been advanced that like, for the good of our security, we maybe need to deplatform people, especially if it's connected to Russian disinformation. So I'm just curious, like, what do you think would happen if these companies started deplatforming people who are, you know, protesting war? Um, even if it was just private? I mean, what, how, what do you think the response would be? No, I mean, I think it'd be very scary. I mean, I hope we're not going to get to that point, but that that's the kind of slippery slope I'm talking about where you you say, well, this is like a pro-Russian position or this is misinformation. I, I found there's an unfortunate tendency to um, take opinions you dislike or evaluations of the evidence you disagree with and dub them misinformation. I, I think misinformation should be restricted to like more extreme cases or cases where you know, uh, I, Alex Jones, the Sandy Hook stuff to me, that's, that's misinformation. That, there's no misunderstanding there. He's spreading misinformation. Um, so 
Yeah, yeah I, 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 I just I wonder if there's any point. point where journalists would have to kind of concede that, like, okay, this is private deplatforming, but like it's starting to become a problem, you know? Yeah, uh, I would hope that at that point they would concede that, but also I hope we don't get there so they don't have to. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Evan. Justin F at Dystopia, what's up? Hey there. Um, I just want to go on the back of a couple of previous callers um, talking about, you know, why why isn't there a bigger pushback on from you know the left, quote unquote, um, regarding a lot of these speech topics, especially like corporate control of speech. And I think a lot of it is uh, one everyone sees that these teams are on their side, for example, yeah. and uh, just a, a lack of historical acknowledgement about, you know, oh, it'll never get used against us when that's of course, just not of course <laughs> Like, of course it will. And it's it, to me, it's just so short-sighted on such of what I think was always the core principle of liberalism. And it really saddens me. Uh, to see that that's kind of yeah it seems very myopic because like how how when is it ever not used against you eventually right yeah um okay that was just a statement but i did want i I had a pair of topics for you um either female genital mutilation versus uh gender treatment uh and also you know literally trolling on the internet for free speech and if you wanted to I got a little thing. I want to put to you on either of those if you want to choose one. Uh, the free speech trolling thing. Stay away sure. from genitals for now. No problem. Uh, okay, so uh, free speech, uh, you know, it, it seems like the, the, this, you know, important value that a lot of us have, less so these days. And part of the reason that it erodes over time is, you know, it's one of those things where if you don't exercise it, it doesn't really get put to use. And I think that people, especially on the internet, but just in general, who, you know, are always pushing at the edges of what's acceptable, um, prevent it from, you know, collapsing in and just the, the narrowing of the Overton window over time. And I think that this is something that, uh, you know, we think of people who do this, you know, like the Milo Yiannopoulos and Nick Fuentes of the world, like, yeah, they got some fucked up thoughts, but um, they should be allowed to say them because having them out there um, just stops things from closing in just organically over time where people are afraid to even think the things that uh, that were once considered, you know, at least utterable, if not actually valuable to have. Not that I think Nick Puentes or Milo are especially valuable in terms of their content, <laughs> Uh, just in terms of the fact that they push back against those trends. If you have any thoughts about, you know, the value of trolling in terms of, you know, keeping free speech as an ethos alive. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, this is where I struggle. I think Fuentes is, is basically a white nationalist and I can understand how if you're Twitter, you don't want outright white nationalism on your platform. It could be true that that's both in Twitter's interest to like purge it from their platform. But, um, I mean, my theory about one of the re- the United States does not have much political violence, and my theory about one of the reasons we do have don't have it is because people can just like vent their stupid, potentially violent ideas, and I, I worry that um, one of the results of pushing stuff underground is like the craziest people will be more likely to get truly radicalized if they feel like they can't express it in public, uh, and if they're less likely to encounter opposing views. So I think there's a lot of possibility for like 
adverse unintended consequences here and people don't don't realize that instead they treat speech they use like an epidemiological model where there's this much racism in the atmosphere infecting this many people or there's this much and we want that we always want there to be less um maybe this is a strained analogy but it's almost like if you use too many antibiotics you get mutations and and yes you have less of these pathogens but you have other more potent ones and i don't I don't have any evidence to support any of this because it's such a, it's so theoretical and so hard to test. I just suspect there might be instances where you do, or it could be argued you do more harm than good by, um, by banning certain voices. Oh, a hundred percent. I think over the past, especially around since Trump, basically, uh, you know, um, historically the U S has been on a decline in terms of like, you know, racism, let's say, um, you know, the black, white, uh, tensions, and uh, I think that's only gone up <laughs> since then and not due to, you know, Trump himself and his rhetoric necessarily. Probably the bigger impact has been the overblown response. And, you know, um, I, 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 I happen to be a white guy. I never really thought of myself on those terms, but it, it, sometimes I feel like, oh, I, I should need to defend myself uh, to like, you know, the, just the idea like it's OK to be white. It's like. I never would have even thought of this five years ago, but now it just seems like, why can't I say that anymore? And I'm, if it wasn't for the fact that people are telling me I can't, it never would have even popped into my mind. Yeah, I, I think that's unfortunately going to happen when um, when there's a decision that like everything or everything in liberal settings needs to be discussed in terms of race. I don't think people should be surprised when that happens. Um, but anyway, thank you for the call, Justin. Good points. Thanks, Jesse. Uh, so Jeffrey's going to be my last caller. Unfortunately, I just, I have to um, go hang out with my niece and nephew and do Passover related stuff. Jeffrey, what is going on? Or if Jeffrey can't undo his mic, it will be the next person. Going once, going. Hello. Can you hey, hear? there we go. Yep. Got you. Okay. So, sorry. For some reason, when it switches to you, it mutes your mic instead of turning it oh, on. That's not great. That's a weird yeah. thing. But, uh, yeah, um, boy, I feel the pressure, huh? Um, yeah, so I just wanted to tell you, sir, that, you know, I am a conservative. I would say I'm more conservative than, you know, probably 80 or 90% of your audience. But I just wanted to say that I appreciate what you do. You know, I don't agree with you or uh, Katie Herzog, or I guess since I'm a uh, conservative, I should say the girl. I, but, uh, you know, you're, you're doing great work and I appreciate Thank it. you. I really appreciate that. And, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, there, there's a lot of talk, you know, about, you know, conservatism and the future of conservatism and the past of conservatism and, you know, how it all relates to Donald Trump. And, you know, I'm, I don't know. I'm not a uh, media mogul or, you know, a professional commentator or any of that, but I mean, the way I see it is, you know, there are questions that were, that arose before Donald Trump ever became a question and as to the world of conservatism. And a lot of the people who were the heads, you know, the talking heads of conservatism never reflected upon it or anything. And Donald Trump became 
a problem. And let me tell you, I do not like Donald Trump. I did vote. What do, for what him do you think they failed to reflect on that led to Trump? What? They failed to reflect on what led to Donald Trump. Like, they acted as though it was just, you know, it was just this thing that came out of nowhere. And none of them knew, like, they couldn't, they, they didn't understand. Like, it's just a fucking mystery. You know, he sprang fully formed from the fucking ether and took over the Republican Party. And that's not what happened for anybody with an eye. And sorry, sorry if I'm going off on it. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I just, I'm just curious. What, so what do you think, what is the thing they failed to realize that led to his rise? <laughs> it was a large part of it was the, shall we say, the insular nature of conservative talk. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of guys shaking hands with each other. And, you know, it's like, you know, I'm outside that circle. I'm a nobody. I mean, shit, I'm 38 years old. So, you know, how old would I have been back when Trump became an issue? I didn't vote for him in 2016. So, you know, however old I was then, you know, but. Do you, do you like, think part of the problem is like uh, my sense is conservative elites on issues like globalization uh, or some social issues, the kinds of people who like wear suits and live in D.C. didn't really reflect the base. And then Trump burst onto the scene by saying stuff the base believed in. Or is that an oversimplification? I think that is in some terms an oversimplification, uh, an oversimplification. I think a lot of it is that. The the uh, elites of conservative media honestly thought their audience was stupid. And so they were able to say one thing while doing another, and they honestly thought that their audience wouldn't notice, and their audience give me an, give did me an, notice. Give me an example of that. Okay. So when Donald Trump became the nominee, there was a lot of panic. You know, a lot of moral panic about how how can con a conservative audience promote somebody who is a serial adulterer? That is that is a terrible thing. Meanwhile, shall we say, uh, for instance, oh, I don't know, Charlie Sykes, right, who was a serial adulterer and was embraced, fully embraced, by every member. Oh, so that's what you mean when you say they think you're stupid. Like, pe like people didn't know there were other serial adulterers in the ranks of conservatives. Well, yes, but just anything, anything that Donald Trump had done, was accused of doing, or had done, it's all there. It's like, you know, you want to fucking pretend to be the adults in the fucking room, then be the, be the adults in the room. But don't fucking, don't fucking pretend... Like you're goddamn priests when you're not. Yeah. No, that um, and that makes sense to me. So sorry to get worked up about it. It's just you know, it's something that I keep seeing over and over and over again, and it's just it's a, it's bullshit. It's a goddamn play, and it's bullshit. Yeah. Um, I I appreciate that perspective, Jeffrey. Yeah, I don't I don't hear from a lot of like. Um, slightly more conservative people, so uh, feel free to call in any time. But that's that's definitely useful to hear. Yeah, I, I apologize for. The There's nothing to apologize for. It was a good call. You know, it, it, 
It's just, you know, it's been festering for a while. So yeah, maybe uh, I let loose a bit. Yeah, no worries. We'll talk. Uh, I appreciate but, uh, the call. Yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate what you do, what you Thanks, and man. Katie do, and so on and so forth. Blah, blah, blah. Of course. You know. Really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Uh, okay, guys. I'm going to have to wrap it up there. I apologize. There's a bunch of people in the queue I wasn't able to get to. But um, as always, thank you for tuning in. And um, sorry, Jeff, I'm just muting you because there's yard noise. Um yeah, thank you for tuning in. I thought this was a good conversation. I'm going to have more, hopefully, good stuff coming up. Uh, check out my uh, article in The Spectator about the free speech stuff. New episode of Blocked and Reported uh, coming out tomorrow, uh, Monday for everyone or already out for premium subscribers. That's about the libs of TikTok thing, among some other stuff. Uh, and yeah, hope you guys have a lovely rest of the weekend. Farewell. <laughs>